0: Today we are talking about the teaching of anatta, known as not-self or non-self. Another very profound and quite unique teaching. It's one of the teachings which are unique to the Tathagatas. If you find teachings about generosity, about virtue, even about samādhi in um, many different religions, but uh, in the sunyata, the emptiness of self, the full abandonment of the delusion of I, me, mine, and self, there is a uh, the hallmark of the teachings of uh, the Tathāgatas, no only The Buddhas teach that to the full extent. So not surprisingly, it can be a little bit confusing or challenging. The first thing we have to understand clearly is that the Buddha is not trying to establish some theory or some philosophy. He's not so much after some view which is then as uh, absolutely true what the Buddha's is concern is a very practical pragmatic problem of suffering this is something we can feel in our own heart this is not a, a theory or an idea or a philosophy or something one can have different views about and it's something which we experience in our, in our own heart We experience old age, sickness and death and rebirth. We experience painful feelings. We experience disappointment, depression, bereavement. And this is what the Buddha set out to resolve. How do we fully abandon any form of pain and suffering, any form of dukkha? And if someone maybe falls sick with coronavirus and they have awful pain and they can't properly breathe, if you now tell them there is no self, does it really make a difference? Or if you tell them there is a self, this is just an idea, it's a view. And if you're sick, you're suffering, you have got pain, the the view of whether there's a self or there's no self, that's not really the point. What what's the big difference? So the Buddha used non-self, not self, not me, not mine, not I. I am not this. He used that as a technique, as a tool, as a, a meditation a technique to develop wisdom and insight and ultimately letting go. So just the believing or thinking there's no self, this is not the point. But the point is the using that perception and then later that insight, that understanding in order to let go, in order to abandon, in order to like the identification with the body and with feelings and with perception and intention and consciousness. And as a result of that letting go, then our heart will be released from all pain and suffering. As we chant in the Anattalakkhana Sutta, now the Buddha is asking, Is it suitable? Is it appropriate? Does it make sense to regard this as, I am this, this is me, this is myself, this is mine? Now the body, for example. So he's not establishing the kind of, in the absolute sense, is it a safe? is it really mine, in any kind of my absolutist sense. But he's asking, does it make sense to regard it as mine? Does it make sense to appropriate it? Does it make sense to identify with it? Is it appropriate? Is it a smart idea? Is it the skillful Because he is always looking for causal relationships. What is the consequence? So often, there's not so much about having a certain view, but the Buddha analyzes where does a certain view come from? What are the causes and conditions that a certain person has a certain view? And secondly, if someone has a certain view, what are the causes and conditions of holding that view? For example, if we regard the body as me and mine, I am this body, this is my body, the body is myself. If that is my attitude, if that is my conviction, what is the result of that if I get sick? I'm totally convinced I identify with this body. I regard this body as me and mine. I'm of the view that the body is myself. And now maybe I end up dying from coronavirus and this body is dying on me. Lots of suffering, isn't it? This is how he taught his first five disciples. He asked them, what do you think, monks? Is the body... Permanent or impermanent? And they said, of course, no, the body, form, form, rupa, is impermanent. And the Buddha asked them, is something that is impermanent able to give you a perfect happiness? or Was it ultimately disappointing? And then the monks answered, no, nah, ultimately it will always be disappointing. Something that is not lasting, ultimately, that can never give us lasting happiness. And then the Buddha said, no, nah, so if you have something that is impermanent, ultimately disappointing, and changing, becoming otherwise, is it a smart idea? To regard it as me, mine and self. And what is a consequence if we take something that is disappointing, impermanent, not lasting, as me or mine, as myself? The consequence is suffering. And that is how the monks agreed with the Buddha. This is they said, no, no, it doesn't make sense. It's not a good idea. It's not appropriate because the result of that is not that I suffer. So it's not trying to figure out in an absolute sense, is there a self, is there no self? And maybe it's easier to see, say, if you talk about mine, mine appropriating, because these two things, they always go together. Atta and Ataniyam. You know, a self needs something to to have, to own. And ownership you know, supposes that there's a self. You can't have one without the other. So these two delusions always go together if we believe in self and I. And we also are deluded that certain things are mine. Uh, ownership and selfness are uh, two complementary parts of the same delusion. Maybe just to give an example, so imagine someone has got a a bike, a push bike, really nice one, a mountain bike, and they go out and they love riding on their mountain bike. And now one day it gets stolen. And now someone else has a mountain bike and he's riding around and enjoying it. The first guy with the bike is gone, stolen. So now one can argue you know, who owns that bike. And I think that according to law you, you don't really acquire legal ownership by stealing it. <laughs> so you know, according to law, you know, the first guy is maybe still the official owner, but he can't use it. You know, the, the second one who has stolen it. Now, he may not be the legal owner, but he certainly has got an attitude now. He regards it as me and mine. He thinks this is mine. He identifies with that bike. And that is the important one. It's not about not trying to decide from an objective, absolute standard who owns that. But the thief now is riding around with it and he will have the attitude of mine. For example, if it now gets stolen again, he will be very upset. <laughs> because quite independent from any legal decision. He has got this attachment now, he identifies, he wants to have it. And then of course he has got the suffering. Because if the bike now breaks, he goes too fast, the bike falls down the hill, now it's broken. Although legally it is not his, but in terms of attitude, he owns it. So, ownership is something which is not objectively out there, but ownership is something which we are making and creating. It always strikes me when I think about how we acquired the properties here, the big property first. You you go through this conveyancing and the, the contract and the lawyers. Then it gets into the cadastre. You, know, you, you pay Buddhist Vyava Inc., they would be paying the price. And then then this property is now owned by Buddhist Vyava Inc. and Sangha. But not, nothing has changed there. The wallabies the are hopping around and crossing the border. The rain is falling, the sun is shining, the water is running from one property to the other. Now, this is only a completely mental construct. Now, the cadastre it is all registered. Now, this is only now electronically now in some computer. And then There are some papers which you have signed, and then in the banks there are some transfers. And then suddenly you know, people, when they buy property, you know, then they suddenly have this attitude, this belief, And they create this sense of ownership, how, how can you own all of that? Now, so we can see that uh, ownership is something which we create. And this is good, because if we create it, we can stop owning. If it was something objective, absolute, then I mean, there's no way to get out of it. But if ownership is something that we are making, then we can stop owning it. We can let go. And then uh, we will no longer have the consequences of ownership. And most people believe that the consequences of ownership will be some form of happiness. If I have a nice mountain bike, I can go winding down the mountains now the Buddha doesn't deny you know, that there can also be some happy feelings from ownership. Uh, but any conditioned thing we can own ultimately will disappoint us. Because either the thing gets stolen or gets broken or we die you know, before it breaks. And then we also separate it. Now ownership always implies separation. Because all its are impermanent. And whatever we own, ultimately it will be taken from us. Even if it lasts longer than our body, and it will be still taken from us because we are dying. We can't take it with us. And so this is what the Buddha points out. Ownership is something we are doing. There's no point arguing about that. But what he does is showing us what is a consequence, what is a result from owning something, from it deliberately building up and creating this attitude that this is mine now. And the consequence is ultimately always a disappointment, suffering. And I and self is the same. There's a delusion which we actively create in our mind. It's not something that exists in an absolute sense, but due to lack of understanding, due to lack of seeing clearly, there's a delusion which we build up in our mind. And uh, it's a delusion which is ultimately harmful for ourselves, not so harmful for others. So the Buddha doesn't go into big arguments there because if you tell people now that no, there is no self and then they just get agitated and end up arguing. Instead he shows them what is the result if you take that to be yourself. What is the result if you have any delusion of I am? And the result is ultimately uh, pain and suffering. So the good thing is, because we are creating that delusion, we are creating the attitude of ownership, it means we can also stop doing that. Now that is the function of the non-self-teaching, uh, to apply that against ownership and delusion of self, so that we get out of the consequence, which is suffering. The Buddha has even analyzed how this process works in more detail and he found that ultimately it's five things which we use to prop up the delusion of self. It's five things which we think we own. It's five things in which support the delusion of I. Let us see in a Panjupa Kanda the five groups of clinging in a form. Now, for example, this physical body now, that is the most obvious one. And if you take a selfie, what does it mean? What is a selfie? Selfie is a rupa, is form. Right? It's your physical form. Because this is all the selfie records. And if it's a photo, all you have you know, is a representation of your physical form. And when you see the photo, then you think, oh, this is me. <laughs> what you see there is rupa, you know, just form. But we are building up the idea of the deep illusion that this form is me. Or that's not the only one. What else do we take to be me or mine or myself? A feeling. Pleasant, painful. Oh, I'm in pain. <laughs> I'm so happy. us so that is the second area where we uh, which we use to maintain the delusion of self and me and mine uh, feeling vedana. pleasant unpleasant painful very happy now, the third one is uh, perception it's a bit more like you know, the intellectual faculty you know, to recognize things to know things you know, to have labels There's also a very strong identification. Uh, beautiful. beautifulness is sonya, is a perception. And this is uh, how I define myself, what I find beautiful and what I find ugly. <laughs> another person may be the opposite. I may find that flower beautiful and the other one finds that flower ugly. But they prefer another, that flower. One person is into roses, other into lotus. The third person thinks, no, all flowers are ugly and they like uh, cactus. (laughs) And you can notice now, when you get into arguments, how strong the identification is with that. Now, that is another drawback which we can investigate of the delusion of self and I and mine. It, It tends to lead to big arguments. Because we are so strongly identified with it—good and bad, you know, right and white and wrong—the way you did it is wrong; the way I do it is white. Right. <laughs> this is a perception and identification and delusion of self in terms of you know, identifying with perception. Now the next one, which we use for our delusion of I, me, mine. There's an intention, a real volition choice. This is how I define myself, because this is me, because I want this, and I don't want that. And then the last one is consciousness, being aware. Eye consciousness, seeing things. We don't say, I consciousness arises, and if we say, I see this and that, I hear, you can see now how strong it is with consciousness in particular. One can't even express it without immediately using this I delusion. Now, I hear. The way the Buddha describes it, now there's the ear, ear faculty. There are sounds, and then contact. There's an appropriate act of attention, and then the ear consciousness arises. Where does the eye come from? The eye is something that I introduce. The eye is my delusion that I hear. Simply ear consciousness. And the fascinating thing is that uh, the whole delusion of I and self and me is completely dependent on these five things. So if we can abandon the delusion of I and self regarding these five, then there's no space left for the delusion to hide out and it will completely collapse. The only way for that delusion of I, me, mine to exist is by latching onto these five. This is why it's such an important meditation exercise to look and investigate form, feeling, perception, intention and consciousness. And when we investigate and look at these five, and we find that they're quite similar in one regard, because they're all impermanent. <laughs> and if we see that they're impermanent, then we come to understand that regarding them as I and me never get me into trouble. for example, if you go shopping, maybe something major, you know, maybe some important furniture or a car, you may be doing some investigation and you look at Amazon and then you check the um, uh, reviews people send in, people have bought this product, what is one typical thing which you check out before you buy? want to know where that lasts isn't it (laughs) and if you buy an expensive new uh, television expensive new computer or some uh, cupboard or whatever or the kitchen equipment and then on Amazon there's all these reviews and they're all saying oh this is quite a nice thing unfortunately it broke after half a year (laughs) would you buy that kind of stuff where everyone says it's broken after half a year Ah, you see, this is the whole point of the teaching the Buddha gives us here. So you, you wouldn't buy this stuff on Amazon if the reviewers are saying it doesn't last, it just breaks immediately. But somehow you have bought into this body. <laughs> Although all the reviews are telling you this thing is an, is an awful product, don't buy that. Maintenance is incredibly high. You spend sometimes hours a day looking after that thing, washing and clothing and feeding and combing and makeup and perfume and deodorant and creams and uh, moisturizers and antiseptic and going to the hairdresser and it's just endless. And even if you do all of that, it still constantly starts falling apart. It's getting sick. And in the end, it's got just chucked either into the ground at a barrier or at a cremation that's just burned. This is exactly the same point. And what the Buddha is teaching us, our insight, which we develop when we investigate these things, is a little bit like checking on Amazon, the reviews, and it happens automatically. Once you understand from these reviews that this product is really faulty, it doesn't last, and you're just wasting your money if you try to own that, there's a very similar insight when you notice this form is a really shabby and disappointing product plant obsolescence as they say it will last only a couple of decades and it will look ugly very quickly it's not only how long does it last but when you buy some uh, beautiful new uh, kitchen and then after one year the, the color starts coming off and there's already cracks and Discolorations, you'll be very upset. But why do we buy into this body? Why do we want to own this? And in a short time it becomes ugly, unattractive. So and, uh, exactly the same response and you look at this review and then you think, I don't want to buy that. So similarly, you look at this body And you realize, I don't want to own that. That's getting me into trouble. And as a result of that insight, then the heart can let go of the body. And Once the heart lets go of the body, then we no longer have any of the suffering that comes from the body. We don't own it anymore either. It's similar with Vedana, with feeling. Now, of course, in a, in a happy feeling, the Buddha doesn't deny, in a happy feeling, does feels pleasant. But again, if we come back now, to the example of buying things on Amazon, now, sometimes there's something called a package deal. Do you know a package deal? For example, if you get a new phone, and there's basically two options. Either you just buy the phone, what they call unlocked, and then you have to get a SIM card and you have to get a plan for your for your phone from Telstra or from Nibaba or from Optus or whatever. Or you, you do a, a package and you go straight away to Telstra and they give you both. They give you a phone and a plan together. What do you usually prefer? You only have the package deal. I I always prefer buying the phone separate and then the plan separate. But obviously, sometimes if you go and the telecommunication company, they may give you a phone pretty cheap. You get it much cheaper than when you just buy the phone, but only because you also have the plan. And when you're stuck, you have to have both. You cannot just next week decide, oh no, they have the new uh, Xiaomi phone. And this is actually much better, and I want a different phone. It doesn't work like that. Now you've got a package deal. You've got the phone, but you also have to have that plan. They to go together. And with the happy feelings, you also have got a package deal. Because if you have pleasure, you will always have pain as well. They go together. Sorry, it's bad news, but this is just this is just the reality. It's not, it's not my fault. I'm, I'm only the messenger, or rather the Buddha is the messenger. And I don't know why this samsava is arranged in such a way that pain and pleasure go together. And we have a human body and it's very sensitive to pleasure. And it feels very good if you have nice food. And on a winter day like this, you know, noon, it's beautiful, warm. You can go into the sunshine. And you know, there's so many things you now we can experience pleasure with the body. But if you have this human body and you're also liable to pain, you can get coronavirus and diabetes and cancer. And heart attack, and all the pain that comes with it. Your body is sensitive not to experience pleasure, but they can also put you in a torture chamber and torture you. You You've got excruciating pain. Now, this can't be avoided. There's both, there's a package deal. And if you buy into the pleasure part, you will get the pain part as well. And I'm really, really sorry, but I've got another bad message for you. Or rather the Buddha has another bad message for you because the pain is more. (laughs) It's already bad enough that you have this package deal of pleasure and then you also have to have pain. But as the Buddha pointed out the pain is actually more. So it's a really bad deal. And although we can get some pleasure in the end we get more pain. So if someone suggests to you such kind of package deal, what do you do? You don't buy it. (laughs) You don't buy it. don't buy into pleasure and pain. You have to let go of pleasure and pain. Because the pain is more. And in particular, we have to let go of this delusion that we can have only, only pleasure if we are smart. Have you ever blamed yourself? Why can't I do it smarter? Why can I not just arrange it that I always have pleasure and not pain? So I've got some good news for you. It's not kind of your fault. Every, everyone has got that problem. It's not that only you doing something wrong. But it doesn't work. You, however smart you are, however, a street voice and sneaky or whatever, you, you, you can't achieve that, there will always be pain as well, and ultimately the pain will be worse, will be more. So, uh, once we see that, maybe you don't buy into it and maybe let go of both. But again, the bad news, you've got to let go of the pleasure as well. <laughs> So sometimes if I try okay, I try to have only pleasure, and then that doesn't work out and then they have more pain. and they get the teaching of the Buddha and then they hear about letting go, and then they try their best not to let go of pain, but they still would like the pleasure <laughs> that also doesn't work. It's also for the letting go if you want to let go of feeling, you have to let go of both. and then uh, the, the other three. But again, uh, another good news, I had so much bad news, and we should have some good news as well. You actually don't really have to even understand all five of them. It is good and uh, boosts our practice if you contemplate all five groups of clinging. But if you understand even only pain and pleasure and let go of that much, and you will let go of everything. will happens automatically. If someone is fully understood you know, the whole problem is a packaged deal of pleasure and pain, and that pain is always more in the end, and then due to that understanding, they that completely go of feeling, they also let go of the you know, body, perception, intention and consciousness, and they will be completely liberated. And even the coarsest of these five uh, form, if we can fully let go of the body, you know, then we will already have another third stage of enlightenment and non returning So this is really good news. although the delusion of self uh, can operate with these five supports, in order to abandon it, it's actually enough to fully understand one of the five. And then you're free. You're out of that package, dear. You are no longer have cheated yourself. If you're, like a, if you're like one of these marketing calls, do they still do that, marketing calls? Somehow you don't get them here. On your phone, you answer your phone and then they try to sell you something. And these people, you know, they have a really good spiel and you know, they really know how to sell you things. And this is what we are doing. This is a function of delusion in our mind. They're constantly you know, pushing and trying to sell us these, this body which is just a mess and liable to sickness and very unpleasant and actually not even very nice and fragrant but rather you know, unpleasant in terms of smell, unpleasant once you open it. But there's this little salesman is in our mind and constantly convinces us with this sales spear that we buy into this body. Yeah, there's some little drawbacks, but if you make this body really beautiful, then you'll be happy. It doesn't work. So we have to not buy into that. What do you do if the marketing calls comes in and then someone asks you, could I please speak to so-and-so, and And are you not... What do you do? Do you chat with them for two hours? you just hang hang up on them and you tell them that uh, don't call me again. That's I will report you, and I think you can report them, or you can also... uh, I think you can also register and they are not allowed to call you anymore, unless for charities. Charities can still call you. But there's, I think, a register. I I remember doing that when we still had the landline, and it did help. So please register with wisdom. The function of panya is like this anti-marketing call register. And whenever the... Marva, another delusion in our mind is trying to sell us this body and that we are getting happy or that bodies are making us happy. It's even worse. and the People are not only attached to their own body but then they attach to the body of other people. Can't even cope with their own body and then they get even and comes the body of another person on top of it and you've got an even bigger problem. But there's always this this salesperson trying to sell you that this other body will make you happy now. Nobody will ever make you happy. Everybody will always get you into pain and suffering in the end. So whenever we notice this little sales spear of delusion in our mind, the marketing guy trying to convince us that somebody is going to make us happy, or some feeling is going to make us happy, and so on. And we have to immediately counter that with the power of wisdom, the power of insight. We have to immediately, in a repeat, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. We have to immediately remind us, if I appropriate that, if I regard it as mine, if I buy into that, that's why we have the term, to buy into something, that means to develop the attitude of identification in me and mine. It will lead me to suffering, it will lead me to pain in the end. And then the mind will naturally not disengage. As long as we are alive, we are uh, walking around with this body, but there's a big difference between an owner and a caretaker. <laughs> because a caretaker doesn't own. And uh, this is, for example, for the monks. There's a Sangha property, and we don't own our kutis that we live in. Or still has a duty to look after them. And uh, once Ajahn Chana walking around the monastery and he found this one monk and the kuti had the whole roof and half the roof was broken and was just raining in so the monk would just live in one side of the kuti and then Adanjara sure was ask, asking him what are you doing there and he explained that he's just letting go but that's not the point you have to look after the monastic dwelling place even if you don't own it so, there's a difference in the attitude of a, a caretaker and, uh, and an owner. And it's just like uh, if you're babysitting, it's not your child, you don't own the child. I mean, even if it's your own child, you still don't own it, no? but in a conventional sense, I mean, in a conventional sense. And a babysitter has a very different attitude to the child than a parent. But that doesn't mean that the babysitter just doesn't care. You're a very good babysitter never really care. Or in your profession, you don't own the people you're doing physiotherapy with, and you're still looking after them. So similarly, you have to look after your body. Even the Buddha and the Avatars, they would still eat, they would still bathe but they wouldn't bathe three times a day and wash their hair four times a day. No, it's not necessary. So the point is the difference there between caretaker and owner. And so you, you look after the body, and just like you look after the people you do a physio with. You don't own them. But with your body, the problem is no, you look after it, but no, with a sense of ownership, so your question was a very um, beneficial. And I completely see your point. There's some things you can give up in the sense you give them away completely. No, say uh, whatever. Now this this it's actually not mine. What what is mine? I personally, own this this uh, shoulder bag, my personal possession. I can just give it away completely can't do that with the body, because the body and mind are connected as long as you know, a life lasts, and that is even the case, would be the case even for an Avahant. So the Avahant will still you know, look after the body, the Buddha looked after the body you know, to a sufficient extent, but without a sense of ownership, just like a more like reluctant caretaker.